0: endurance that uh, ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus on the Lord's Day I was in the spirit I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus samaria Pergamon Thyatira, Sardis Philadelphia and Laodicea I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and amongst the lampstands was someone like the son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest his head and hair were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes was like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of, a rushing, of, of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out, the, and out of the mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I write therefore, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place in place later. Later the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand" and the seven golden lampstands is this the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches
1: thanks jeff and good morning everyone Uh, today we begin a series in the um, Book of Revelation. Uh, before I pray, I by very much a brief way of introduction. This is the first of seven sermons that Steve and myself will be um, preaching uh, for this time. Oh, I've been praying for you as I prepare this sermon, and I want to tell you what I'm praying for. I'm praying that God will deepen our knowledge of the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that in the light of that knowledge deepening, he would deepen our faith in his precious son. And I'm also praying that through this the Lord would produce in us the fruit of faith and in an ever-increasing abundance. I pray this for you because it's my greatest need. (laughs) But I pray this for us. uh, Because God's word is that word that brings life. I also need to let you know that I've never had an original thought in my life. Uh, The message I bring to you, I've learned from many others. Um, Don Carson's series on Revelation, on the Gospel Coalition, is an excellent and influencing work in my life. John Stott in his book, What Christ Thinks for Churches, where I stole the title. Um, Andrew Murray on his commentary on uh, uh, Hebrews. And, and Robert Mounts his commentary on Revelation. I, I say that just so you know that, um, uh, again, that I'm simply bringing to you the things that God has taught me in his word through godly men and women. And that may encourage you as well. Uh, Lastly, through this series, um, I do not have a time, or I think more importantly, the ability to preach on every point of this passage, so I apologise beforehand, but trying to focus on the things I pray that will build us up in faith. Let me lead you in prayer. Father, thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit this morning, for what we saw in your supper That brings us to your throne of grace and what we sing, that strengthens and encourages our heart to no end. Father, may the Holy Spirit continue this work today in each one of us, that none of us would leave untouched. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Open Doors is a ministry that serves a persecuted church. Uh, I read this week they report that in North Korea, if a government discovers that you are Christian, uh, you and your family are either sent to a uh, um, labor camp or you're killed. In Somalia, if you are suspected of being a Christian convert, uh, you will be closely monitored. Church life as we know it is simply impossible. So the few believers meet in secret. Christians from Muslim backgrounds are regarded as high value targets and they can be killed on the spot if detected. There are several countries in the Middle East where it's illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity. Christian converts risk risk being killed either by their own families or clans or tribes Displaying Christian symbols can lead to imprisonment, physical abuse, or execution. What does the suffering and persecuted church need most at this time? It is predicted within 15 years, China will become the world's most Christian nation. China's Protestant uh, community which had, would you believe, just one million members in 1949, has already overtaken many, many countries. As of 2010, so 12, 13 years ago, there were 58 million Protestants in China. Now, there are some estimates, and these are a little bit sketchy, it's just an estimate, but but that today, there are over two million Christians in China. Two million. What does the growing church need most in times of great revival? Unlike China, the church in the West, and including Australia, is in a terrible decline. Not only numerically, but theologically and morally. Worldliness, pride, unbelief has infected the Western church to such an extent that many have become utterly blind to the reality of their own spiritual indifference, including some of the most recognised and gifted evangelical leaders of our time. What does the declining church in the West, in Australia, need most at this time? According to the revelation that the Lord gave to the Apostle John, the persecuted church, the growing church, and the church in decline all need one and the same thing. An ever-deepening knowledge of and faith in the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. It is not for nothing that after John is given the command to write down these things that he sees, the very first vision that God reveals to John is of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. The very first vision. If you think about it for a moment, he's not given the vision of a seven bowls of wrath. He's not given a vision of a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven or... The second judgment of Christ or revision of hell, not at all. The very first vision that God gives to John is an an awesome and utterly extraordinary vision of a glorified son of God. Friends, what this is telling us is that the seven churches to to whom Jesus is about to address individually needed this vision of the exalted Christ as of first importance. Now, don't hear me wrong. We as a church, and indeed the church in John's time, need also to see a vision of the heavens and the earth being made new and the seven bowls of judgment and and all the other things that are are to come, of, of course. But the point is this. What they and every church in every generation whether being persecuted, growing, or in decline, needs to know of first importance is the glorified and exalted Christ. And the reason being is that God's saving work is not only centred in Jesus, but impossible outside of him. In your salvation, God does not work outside of his precious and glorious Son, there is a direct correlation between your growth in the knowledge of Christ and your growth in your faith in Christ. Little knowledge of Jesus will result in little faith in Jesus. And little faith in Jesus will bear little fruit. My sisters and brothers, I, I truly urge you this morning To carefully consider your need to know more deeply the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only his past finished work on earth, but his continuing ministry in heaven. Because this is precisely the vision of God, the vision that God gives us of Jesus in these verses. So in verse 9, we read that the Apostle John, who remember himself is under suffering and persecution, is in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, this may mean he was praying, but I think more likely he's been transported in a world of prophetic vision very similar to Ezekiel in the Old Testament. But whatever it means, he was in the spirit. And in this spiritual state, he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. The significance of a voice being loud is that this cannot be misinterpreted as something that is simply in John's imagination, or that's something he sort of misheard. That it was loud, it was like a trumpet, It takes us right back to Exodus 19 when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. Do you remember? A trumpet blast preceded God's revelation to his people. Now, once again, we read a voice like a trumpet precedes the revelation of God to his people. If you have your Bibles open, look with me at verses 12 and 13. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. What we are told here is that John sees the Lord Jesus Christ in this wonderful glorified state. Walking amongst seven lampstands. Now, you'll probably have noticed in verse 20 of this chapter, John tells us that, or Jesus rather tells John, that the seven lampstands are symbolic for the seven churches. And those churches Jesus is about to speak directly to. Before I go on, this may be helpful. The book of Revelation is full of symbolism. The number seven, which is mentioned 36 times in the book, is used in Revelation to symbolise completeness or wholeness. I'll give you an example. In chapter 16, the seven bowls of God's wrath symbolises his final and complete wrath upon the world. So in verse 20, the seven churches... Not only or the seven lampstands, which represents the seven churches, not only not only represents the seven churches in John's time, but it's symbolic to the complete and whole church through all time. Which is extraordinary because what this means is what what John sees in his vision of Jesus is for us here this morning. Jesus has given this for us. And what we see in Revelation, while it was of first importance for the seven churches, it's of first importance for us. And the significance of Jesus walking amongst the lampstand is breathtaking. Because what we are told is that while the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of Father, as we've been so wonderfully reminded today, that is true. While that is true, it doesn't mean he's distant from the church or from us. In fact, he walks amongst us. Which means the Lord Jesus knows and sees what is going on in his church. He knows when the church is growing and needs humility. He knows when the church is being persecuted and needs comforting. He knows when the church is, is disobedient. And needs disciplining and rebuking because he walks amongst us. This part of a vision alone ought to have a profound effect upon your view of Christ's care and love for his beloved church. So often we are tempted, both corporally and individually, corporally as a church and individually as Christians to make the mistake of judging God by our circumstances and not by his word. So, for example, when people are dying for their faith, or the church is being squeezed by the government of the day, or we ourselves are suffering in a horrible and terrible way, we can be tempted to judge God, not by his word, what he says or reveals about himself, but by what we're feeling And at that point, we can begin to doubt Christ's love and care and power. And friends, this is precisely what happened in the time of Moses. Do you remember in the Exodus when God redeemed his people from Egypt and then he gave them manna from heaven? As soon as they were in the desert and there was no water to drink, they doubted that God would provide. Right. So, in Exodus chapter 17, uh, in Exodus chapter 17, we read God's people scoffing. They cry out, "Is the Lord among us or not?" Here we have the answer. Yes, He is. In His love, He walks amongst us. He knows what's going on. But what this also means is that he knows what's going on in the church when things go wrong. We may be able to hide things from each other, but we cannot hide anything from the one whose eyes blaze like fire. Please don't hear me wrong. The Lord Jesus Christ is not like... Excuse any school teachers here, a cranky school teacher in exam time wandering around the room, watching with suspicion. Not at all. That's not the vision we see. On the contrary, we're given a vision of a Lord Jesus in the midst of his people who is lovingly and caring, with much love and care, ministering in heaven on our behalf. And we see this in verse 13 we read that the exalted Christ, like the Son of Man, he is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash. Here we come across something very common in the book of Revelation. There's this direct allusion to the Old Testament. The long robe and the golden sash are the garments of the Old Testament priests. In Exodus 28... God gives Moses a command to Aaron, rather to dress Aaron, the high priest, in a robe and a sash. It's the same wording. But now here we see the glorified and exalted Christ is wearing both. The significance of this is very hard for me this morning to put into words. But I'm going to do the best I can. To to bring to you the meaning of this image, I need to take you to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7 to 10, we have explained there in the most glorious way what it means for Christ to be our great high priest. In chapter 7 of Hebrews, we are told that Jesus Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What that means is Melchizedek is the one who has no genealogy, no beginning and end. He lives forever. And in Hebrews, we find out that Christ Jesus, as our great, great high priest, lives forever in the power of an indestructible life. He's a priest forever. And then when we come to chapter 8, we find out and we read that our great high priest, who lives forever, is ministering and mediating the work of God in heaven and into our lives. Incredible! He's mediating into our lives the new covenant promises. So Christ Jesus is bringing into our lives these promises that God gave back in Jeremiah and throughout the whole Old Testament. And they can be summarized like this Christ Jesus is making our hearts tender so that we no longer love sin but God. He is renewing our minds with His word so we no longer think of the things of evil and ungodliness but holiness and righteousness. And the new covenant promises teach us that He's in heaven. Removing from God the presence of our sin so that He remembers our sin no more. And He is bringing us into fellowship with the Father that we can be in Him and that He can be in us. That is the summary of the New Covenant promises. It's much more than that, but that's a summary a new heart, a new mind. Sins no longer remembered before God. And then Hebrews goes on and says, the means by which the Son of God has done this is through his lifeblood. He shed his blood. And the image he gives to us is that as, as a high priest in the old covenant had to cover everything with blood to, to cleanse it, Christ goes into the heavenlies with his sprinkled blood to remove our sin from the presence of a Father forever. It's incredible. Remembered no more. That's what the new covenant promises is. I will remember their sins no more. And here we read in Revelation. This vision of Christ not only walking amongst us with love and care, but in heaven as our great high priest, ministering before the Father on our behalf and mediating into our lives the promises of a new covenant. But then in the book of Hebrews, he goes on and says, what makes Christ's blood effective? And he tells us that Jesus... will. Willingly gave up his life on the cross, willingly obeying the Father, so that through that one sacrifice he makes holy those who he's making holy. That is, he not only atones for our sins, which not simply limited to forgiveness, but the removing of them from a presence of a God, and now is at work bringing the reality of God's holiness into our lives. Extraordinary. And then the author to Hebrews, as if he hasn't said enough, says, and the Holy Spirit testifies to this. He who is in heaven bears witness to us what's happening in heaven. That is the glory of Christ. Our God. My sisters and brothers. If you consider just for a moment. The priests in Moses' day were in no way qualified or capable to minister such blessings, were they? But the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is a priest forever. He lives in the power of an indestructible life. You have an eternal friend who gave up his lifeblood to tear down the wall of separation between you and the Father He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to do what? To become your great high priest. He who lives in the power of an indestructible life is living to always intercede before the Father on your behalf. More than this, through the power of his blood, he is ministering and mediating into your life the new covenant promises. He's making your heart tender. He's renewing your mind. He's removing your sins and he's dwelling within you. My sisters and brothers this morning, it is this vision of the exalted Christ that we need to know and understand ever more fully because such a vision cannot help but humble us. Doesn't it expose our need every day to rest in Christ, to abide in him? Oh, why wouldn't you pour out your heart and your troubles? Why would you not call upon Christ, your great high priest, looking to him and him alone to fulfil in your life his promised purity, holiness and fellowship? Are we so foolish to really think we have the necessary qualifications to make it possible for God to remember our sins no more? We need to stop acting like we do. And we need to believe what God is revealing to us concerning his son and rest our faith in Christ alone. I encourage you daily to call upon the Lord to fulfil in your life the promised blessings of the new covenant. So far, this vision of God that we see of Christ Jesus dwelling amongst us and ministering on our behalf before heaven is, is glorious, but it's just the beginning. In verses 14 and 15, Christ, we see him with white hair, white as snow, and his, his eyes are flames of fire, and his feet are burnished bronze, and his voice is a roar of many waters. The reason why John says, and this is important, that it's like his eyes were a flame of fire, or like his feet were burnished bronze, is you need to understand that what John is seeing in this vision, he has no reference point to compare it with. See, John is being exposed to the heaven realities. How how can you compare, what can you compare this vision of Christ with? It's kind of like, and the best illustration I can think, is how do you explain the colour red to someone's colour blind? See, a person who's colorblind doesn't have a point of reference to understand colour. So when John sees the things of heaven, he has no earthly point of reference. So he says, well, it's like his eyes were flames of fire. It's not as if when we get to heaven, Jesus will have fire coming out of his eyes. But what these images are raising before us is a vision of Christ... That places him as almighty God. The white hair is the ancient of days. In the ancient Near East, white hair was a sign of wisdom. Many years of life. So we are being told that the exalted Lord Jesus is eternal and holds all wisdom. See, this vision of God is reflecting what we read in the book of Daniel. And purposely so, because Jesus is being spoken of in terms that are reserved for God alone. His eyes, blazing like fire, tell us that while he may be the ancient of days, there's nothing wrong with his eyesight. He sees everything. He he sees it with the sharpest perception. His feet are like burnished bronze in that... It symbolises strength and power. His voice, being the roar of many waters, is telling us that his power is inescapable. Just think of a roaring water through the gorge when it's in flood. Who can tell the rushing water to quieten down? So it is with Christ. See, such a vision of Christ for the persecuted church brings great comfort, doesn't it? Because while they may be oppressed... In the end, they are under the care of your mighty God. Our sisters and brothers in Christ in North Korea and Somalia and the Middle East and throughout the whole world are seemingly in a position of weakness. But this scripture tells us they will prevail. Because they hold fast to the one who is the almighty Lord. On the other hand, the church that is disobedient and loveless and unbelieving and tolerating evil, the church that has become full of pride, such a vision ought to wake up that church, bring them to their senses. See, this is the point of the image of a double-edged sword coming out of Christ's mouth. In Scripture, the double-edged sword is synonymous with judgment. See, not only does God create the world by his spoken word, but he judges his people by his word. Jesus will measure our lives against his word. In fact, in chapter 2 of Revelation, which we will come to, he tells one of the churches there, repent or I'll come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. We are also told that he holds In his right hand, the seven stars, which, according to verse 20, are the angels of the seven churches. Uh, Friends, angels are ministering spirits, servants of God. And I think what we learn here is that the Lord Jesus sends his angels to minister and to help his church in need. Incredible, isn't it? Do you remember in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, Our fight is not against flesh and blood but the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. There is an eternal reality, a spiritual reality, which we don't see. But in that reality, God is at work, sending his angels, ministering to us in our time of need. And lastly, we see Jesus described as having a face that is bright as a sun shining in full strength. And what this is telling us is you cannot domesticate God. No one can look into a sun because it's too bright. No one can look into Jesus and plumb all his depths and come away saying, well, I've worked Jesus out. My sisters and brothers, I've only in these very brief minutes sought to bring before you what the scripture brings before us, and that is a sublime and glorious vision of the exalted Lord Jesus. This is the one who is amongst us today. The persecuted church, the growing church, and the church in decline all have the need of an ever-deepening knowledge of and faith in this exalted Lord Jesus. If this morning you are suffering a broken heart, if this morning you are suffering a broken body, if this morning you are suffering a broken mind, come, meditate on this glorious vision of Christ. The Lord Jesus knows what you're going through. He cares so much for you that he is constantly... before the Father on your behalf, he will lead you through your brokenness. That is not me saying this to placate you, but that is the promise of Scripture. He has prepared heaven for you. He's brought you into God's presence already. And he'll fulfill that one day when you die. If this morning you are struggling with sin, and don't we all? Goodness me. If you are carrying guilt for the awful things you have done, and we all have. If you are overwhelmed with a sense of shame, I've certainly felt that. Come and meditate on this vision of Christ this morning do you remember in the Old Testament and I'll ask you to respond very briefly here what was the purpose that God gave for the sacrifices in the temple each year what were they what was the purpose why did they do the sacrifices do you remember to remind us of sin because the blood of goats and bull can't take away sin to remind them of sin and here comes Jesus Shedding his lifeblood so the Father will remember our sins no more. If you are suffering with your shame and your guilt, remember Christ has gone into heaven and removed your sins from his presence. He's torn down the barrier between you and the Father. You have fellowship with God. You are not only forgiven. Your sins, as we sung this morning, are as far as the east is from the west. So if you're suffering in your sin, come and see this vision of Christ. Let it lift you and let it bring you to confess to God and trust in his forgiveness. And not only that, seek him to make your heart tender to obey and he will answer that prayer. And it's not because I say that is his promise. He will remove from your heart the love of sin for the love of God. Keep resting your faith in Christ, my sister and brother, because your great high priest has put away your sin forever. If today you are struggling at the state of the church, I am... I cannot tell you how many Christian leaders... Who I looked up to and learnt so much from, who have fallen from grace, and some of them don't even believe in Jesus. If you are struggling with the constant revelations of abuse and, and horrible things that have come out of churches, come and meditate on this vision of Christ. He knows what's going on, He cares. The answer is not new programs or new structures or retribution. The answer is Christ. The reason why our churches suffer abuse is because we forget Christ, we, forgot, we forget the one who reigns in glory who is holy, who makes us holy, who leads us. We have forgotten Christ. Come and know that the Lord will prevail because he is your God forever. Let me pray. Father, we we thank you this morning for giving us a word that lifts our eyes to the glory of your son. And Lord Jesus, gathered together now as your people, it is hard to express words of thanks and praise that could even begin to describe what you have and are doing for us. And yet we say, all glory to you. Lord, in your mercy, fill us with your spirit afresh. Lead us daily that we would not only rest our faith in you but pour out our souls to you. Humble us, Lord, that we may experience your gracious lifting us up. Lead us to live our lives in the light of your glory that through us we will serve our Father, bringing glory to your name and knowing your joy. And we ask this in your name. Amen.